Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest for part two, the promo man himself, Rayman Ramsey, the subject of the book's Promo Monkey. He worked for uh, decades as a promo man at Quality Records and RCA BMG Canada out of Vancouver and has lots to share. We'll get some insights about the Canadian music scene from someone who worked with many of the major recording acts. Uh, so thanks for joining me again today. Ray, how are you, my friend? I'm well, and I uh, yeah. hope you're the same. I'm doing good. Yeah, it's uh, life is good. We're on the West Coast here. I guess you're on the West Coast as well. This podcast goes across Canada, but we're both in the Vancouver area. Yeah, I'm in the left coast. Yes, there you go. The wet coast, as we call yeah, it sometimes. Right? It will be today. <laughs> yeah, very cool. So last time we talked about your first book, which was Promo Monkey, My Life as a Bellhop in the Waldorf Hysteria, and the subtitle Friends and Enemas. <laughs> <laughs> you have a very well-developed sense of humor. I love that. Oh, thank you. Yes. Uh, so Promo Monkey, uh, Monkey C, Monkey 2, Personas and Prima Donnas. Uh, that's the second book. So, but we had a couple of things that we didn't get to in the last book that I just wanted to sort of discuss briefly before we get on to the second one. And of course, you got so many stories in both books. So I could talk to you for three days, but uh, we're going to try to squeeze this into an hour and change here. Yeah. Okay. So we we're talking about bands that you had interactions with, and you, you mentioned lots and lots of bands because it, just about everything came across your desk, it seems. I mean, in mm-hmm. different genres too. I mean, you talk hip hop and country and pop rock and even punk you talk about so everything came across your desk that must have been um, a little helter skelter at times yeah it was but uh, the thing about it is you don't get to to pick the music you like and just work that hmm. uh you work whatever the label puts out and to the best of your ability so it's it's a good idea if if you're blessed with being able to like most forms of music and yeah. i do yeah you know, from Strauss waltzes to uh, Queen of the Ragtime Piano, putting her makeup on with a garden trowel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's everything. Yeah. yeah. And then, not to skip too far ahead, but in the in your second book at the end, you talk about the punk scene too, which was, mm-hmm. was a, sort of a different animal too. And, and you spent a whole chapter talking about that and, and how, I don't know, odd it was, I guess, or the rebellious sort of angst music. Yeah, it was, but it was refreshing at the same time. It was a challenge. And uh, you were, was, uh, the Sex Pistols weren't on your label, is that right? No, they weren't. Yeah, okay. Um, I tried to get um, Joey Shithead and DOA signed to our label, but I wasn't able to secure that, unfortunately. But they were the premier act at the time out of this market. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in Vancouver, they were certainly... uh, well, interesting. So some of the bands you worked with, you you mentioned, uh, of course, Santana and the Eagles. Um, did you ever have interactions and meet with them or work with them? The Eagles connection came via Poco. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one of the guys, uh, I don't have it in front of me right now, but he was in the Eagles and he uh, joined Poco and he was great. Um, Santana, uh, that was a big challenge for me out here. Um Thank God for 100.3 to Q. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I had local stations here. They'd have a single off. They'd say, oh, that guy's more the other station. And the other station would say, oh, no, that's not us. That's the other station. You know, at which point I performed them. I, I informed them that uh, they were the reason I wasn't allowed to carry a firearm. 
<laughs> well, yeah, just, that's interesting because Santana's sort of all over the map. They've been rock and, and yeah, adult yeah. Then the light went on, and they knew it all along. Okay, interesting. And then uh, you had some association with the Stampeders. Did you do? Some oh, yeah, it was the first major act I ever worked with. Yeah, they nice. were uh, uh, Sweet City Woman and uh, a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I was on the road with them uh, once at the very start in Victoria. Yeah. And of course they came through Vancouver a couple of times, one with uh, Wolfman Jack. And that was an interesting experience yeah. <laughs> to be sure. Was he as crazy as he appeared to be or was he uh, professionally? When he, was, when he was in character. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the guys, it's a, it's a persona, right? A professional yep. persona. Well, good. Well, I'm glad you got to work with them because they're, they're great guys. And uh, of course, big fan of their tunes and stuff. And they, and they're still touring. They're going to go out and do some more dates next year. I just had Kim Burley on uh, too. So they're going to go out again next year. Yeah. He's a good guy. I like Kim. Oh, great. And then Stonebolt, of course, uh, we talked about Dave Wills and, and Ray Roper and you know, those guys, they, mm-hmm. they came out of Vancouver. Uh, they recorded in LA actually. I think they yep. were on Capitol, weren't they? Didn't they? Uh, no, they were on. Uh, Stretching my, your brain. I, parachute. Here. Fair, okay, yeah, and that was a subsidiary. It was a s- subsidiary of Millennium, I believe. Okay, yeah. Well, that's one thing. If I can digress just for a second about the the record business, so you got these major labels, and then you have all these uh, sort of smaller labels that use the majors as a distribution point. Is that the way that it works? Yeah, pretty much. They all so, try and, and, of course, be major on their own. But uh, uh, that was the chain of command back then. Yeah. Well, because you didn't have the distribution network, right? You can start the record company, mm-hmm. but if you can't get the product out to the people in the stores, yeah. then you're, yeah, okay. Now, I always wondered about that because you have so many, I mean, you would know better than anybody, but the shifting landscape of the record business, I mean, you've got these companies buying up other companies and all the small ones get bought up and yeah. they, they come and go. It's hard to keep track of it all. Well, when I started, I think there was something like 12 different labels. No, I think there's maybe two or three. Right. So it's like a Pac-Man mentality where they gobble up mm-hmm. everybody else and just control it. Because Sony has bought the catalogs of lots of, you see that all the time now, that they'll buy a catalog for X amount of dollars. And yeah. then they can milk that and exploit that for the decades to come, right? Mm-hmm. Well, cool. And then uh, you mentioned Thor, uh, the muscle rock. I saw Thor back in about 1980, I think, or 81. Yep. And he was out there. Did you sign them or did you, were you just doing promo for them? No, they, they they came from Willie Morrison in Toronto. Okay. Uh, but he had a history out here on uh, Channel 8 Wrestling hmm. um, and the uh, live shows. He would uh, do some stuff called um, Mickle Body Rock. His last name was Mickle. Okay. And uh, he'd do uh, in between uh, pinfalls and... Uh, knee drops he would perform that at, at the shows and then he'd come on tv and he'd do something like blow up a water bottle or something like that oh yeah yeah uh, yeah he did that yeah. yeah so i mean it, he that was his local base i didn't have anything to do with him until i actually got him on the label yeah okay no very cool no i i saw him he would bend the bar in half he wrecked a couple of mic stands i think oh yeah that's good <laughs> <laughs> i had some bands who did that yeah there you go so that was funny. And then uh, Trooper, of course, came out of the West Coast here. And I, I knew Smitty back in the day and when yep. I was a teenager, actually, and they came out of the West Coast. But they were they were signed to MCA originally. Yeah. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, later on, however, uh, possibly in the 90s, we had one album 
Uh, I think Mike Fraser did it at Mushroom. Okay, interesting. And then and then so they were on your label for a bit. So yeah, yeah. Okay. And they're great people to work with. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, they retired now. I guess there's a, a franchise band out there doing uh, Trooper songs, but uh-huh. Smitty, Smitty and Ray are retired now. Yeah, it's like Doug uh, and the Slugs. Right there, you go. Yeah, I guess it's. I never thought that would happen. I don't know what your thought on that is, but I, I guess the name becomes something you can sell, so it becomes yep. a franchise in essence. So as and long you as you have a got- guy that looks somewhat like Doug, uh, yeah. and they they always seem to have done um, theme shows of different kinds. <laughs> Each one would be different, and so it was a, an entertainment package. Yeah, uh, the hits came later, but. Right. Um, it had, it was something there that, as you said, there can be sold, but it's not the same thing. Yeah, and and the funny thing is, like I know Ted Okus fairly well. I've known him for years, and he's a you know he's the one guy that could probably pull it off because they just did a big thing at the P and E with the Vancouver Symphony and stuff too, and they pulled it off, and they've got the original members. But it, it there's some disconnect there that I just can't get real comfortable with when when you got a band like Trooper, who there's not a single original member in the band, but they're touring <clears> as Trooper. And uh, it seems a bit, um, I don't know. I, n- I just never thought that bands would become franchises, I guess, is the way. Yeah, well, you know, I'd call that covering the troops. Well, and they're still getting getting some decent dollars. And, and uh, you know, I don't know what the concert goers experience is. You got good singers and stuff, but it's a cover band at this point, like Foreigner even. I saw Foreigner years ago and and uh, Mick Jones, I guess it is. Uh, yeah. The guitar player was was playing a few tunes, and and he's gone now too. So there's no original members. Yeah, mm, I don't know. It's all Greek there. to me. Yeah, there you go. And then, what was your experience with Tragically Hip? You mentioned them a couple times. They, they, they started they had an EP on RCA, and um, we'd heard quite a bit about them uh, before seeing them on their first tour. They uh, came across Canada and. Uh, the clubs and venues that were playing were used to like cover bands or metal bands. And, uh, the hip were more, uh, ethereal than cerebral. Oh, sorry. More cerebral than visceral. I beg your pardon. No. And, uh, that wasn't what they were looking for. So they would throw stuff at the band and scream and holler and, uh, they would get fired off of gigs oh, and, uh, <laughs> people just weren't in the right frame of mind for that. Uh, but that, as you know, History proved that to be incorrect. Uh, when I got them, they were just doing little clubs. They were doing a little club out in uh, in Coquitlam, and I was driving them around from place to place, having good conversations. But they were all good guys, good to deal with. Um, and then next thing you know, they're on MCA. Mm. And That's... I thought, well, thanks for nothing. Yeah, <laughs> I worked very, very hard for them, as I'm sure most of uh, the staff did. Um, but you know, I, I still have that where my relationship with them was good and I'm yeah, happy with yeah. that. Yeah. And you were, were you friends with Gord Downey? Yeah, we were, uh, quite friendly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, just because you, you talk a, a few times through your book about your cancer situation. And of course he had a similar situation, which eventually took his life prematurely. Yeah. And we're both, both supportive of, uh, the natives. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Well, very cool. So, so you never did get to sign them to your label, but you, you were happy with their success, I presume. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, uh, the Fox or C Fox at that time were playing a track and, uh, 
they were done with it. And I went in and I said, okay, uh, what are we going to do for the next track? This is what they're calling it. And uh, the lady said, I think we're done with the hip. Oh, uh, oh careful what you say. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. your future house band. Yeah, that's right. That'll come back to, to bite yeah. you because they, they cranked out a lot of good tunes. Um, well, I was going, I was in at SFU in, in the late 80s and we had a, a radio show. Uh, yep. on the SFU radio station and the tragically hip was quite big in the, in the college and university circuit because mm-hmm. they were that kind of band. And we used to play their songs then. That's what I first heard of them because they said, mm-hmm. oh, check this band out, tragically hip. Right? Um, and then tell me the, the story about steel river. That, that was a bit of a train wreck and you had, had mentioned it when we had lunch. I think you mentioned it and, and how you got some blowback for your recollection. Yeah, uh, well, I, I work with uh, Greg Hamilton's uh, Tuesday label, which Steel River was on, and probably their biggest uh, success. Uh, and I'd worked with them uh, at the um, Cloverdale uh, Rock Show out there as a special event. And, yeah. uh, you know, drive them in from Vancouver to Cloverdale and watch the show. And you could tell they were more partial to being in Toronto than they were in Cloverdale. Hmm. Uh, they weren't shy about that. And uh, neither were they shy about uh, stating their opinion, which they had a right to, about uh, music and how records should be sold. So, hmm. you know, that's fine. But later on, when the book came out, uh, this person got in touch with me and says, you're a liar. <laughs> I talked to the band and they don't even know you. And I thought, well, you know, to each their own. Uh, I still have the scars. I don't know about you. <laughs> um, and I just thought, you know what? I'm not going to waste what little time I have left dealing with this because I know what happened. And bam, yeah. that was it. Yeah. I don't know what oh, they're yeah. doing now, but they. I certainly enjoyed their music. Well, I mean, the other thing that struck me about your situation, you've seen a lot of guys on their way up, on their way down. You've seen the big egos. You've seen the the, the, the dope heads and the and the guys that are just not keeping it together and then and then the short-lived ones that just have this rise and then the next day they're poof they're gone yep you know i so, have I've, you know. I've seen both sides of the the ladder yeah and then you talk about uh, you know the work and how much work uh, you know you talk about the record company and how much uh, i guess stress but it's hard work you talk about long days i mean there's fun times but but mm-hmm. you're working in the context of all that right yeah but you know however long the day is uh that's what it takes and if you're devoted to your job and committed, you just do it. I mean, they're not all like 21 hour days, although I had a few of those, but you know, uh, and it is a lot of work, but that kind of um, occupation requires a lot of uh, mental thought and planning. Yeah. uh, And you have to do that rather than just react to stuff. Uh, There's different ways to uh, get people to reconsider their initial opinion of a song or, or a group. Um, try those. Don't yeah. slam your fist on the table and go starring out. That just says you're juvenile. Yeah. And then in your second book, actually, you talk about that. You, you devote some time to that, talking about how, you know, you're working all day. You're setting up the, the interviews and radio and maybe TV spots. You're you're prepping for the show and everything else. So you've, you've put in a full day's work and then you actually go to the show at night. So you might yeah. get home at two or three in the morning, but then you got to be back at work pretty much the next day and get back at her. Yeah, yeah, that's true. No, no sleeping in there. <laughs> yeah. So and then and then you you're quite open about your cancer scare. So then you had to deal with that sort of in the midst of all this. It, was it more than one time that you had that? Uh, um, issue? the the 
The big one was in 95. Okay. And that really obviously knocked me for a loop because I had to have a surgery. Okay. So you can call me gutless and be partly right. Yeah. Um, but that kept me out of the office. I was in the hospital. I was at home. Mm. Um, but I refused to not participate. Now, Mike Morrow, uh, my more than capable uh, other guy in my office, uh, picked up the uh, the promotion thing and went forward and we discussed it, you know, over the phone. Yeah. Um, there's no reason to stop and you can't stop. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I had a hand, a continuing hand in things, even though uh, I wasn't boots on the ground. I just couldn't leave well enough alone. Right. But that kind of works for you, I think, incentivizing you to get better and get out there and get back at her. Yep. Is that fair? Yeah. Well, good for you. And then you got through that. And then, of course, I have to mention the, the Wigs for Kids, uh, you know, charity that you're involved in, which touches my heart. You know, I mean, you see, you see the kids that are that are suffering with cancer. I mean, you just, you just oh, can't. Oh, gosh. Can. Actually, a friend of mine was going to be a doctor and he went to medical school and, and one of his internships was at Children's Hospital and he went there for one day and he, and he just couldn't handle it. He just took off his lab coat and hung it up and said, I have to go. Yeah. It was it, too hard. It would break your heart. Oh, it was just, yeah. And he became a dentist. He just said, <laughs> I, could, I couldn't, you know, but he just said, I couldn't do it. It was just too hard. And, and I, I bless the people who work there because that's a special you know, I mean, adults, we can, you know, okay, if your time's yeah. up, your time's up, you know, kind of be philosophical about it. But the kids, that's a whole different ball game. So Yeah, for sure. They're the future. Yeah. So I appreciate what you, uh, what you're doing there as well. So, uh, sorry, I'm sort of bouncing all over the place here, but I just, things that struck me when I was reading through your books, um, Prairie Oyster, like you have really high praise for them. Russell DeCarl, I guess is yeah. how you pronounce his name. And that yeah. you were inducted into the BCCMA hall of fame, I guess. But, uh, they they came, they had a, a real rise. They were real big for a, a while, and then they seemed to disappear. What What's the deal with that? They got, uh, they were on um, Stony Plain originally, which we distributed. Okay. And then they signed on to RCA Canada, and then uh, RCA US, RCA Nashville picked them up, and that's huge. Um but uh, that relationship didn't last as long as it might have. They went back to RCA Canada, um, and eventually the, the band stopped performing. Uh, Russell's always been on the road. Uh, they're all good people. I've always gotten on very well with Russell. So, yeah, I got high praise for people who know how to say thank you. Well, that there you go. We like we talked about the different egos, different situations, and stuff. And then, and then I noticed through your book, you have you know you're you're pretty open about people you liked and people you didn't mm -hmm. <laughs> so much. And and that's all part and parcel of it, right? Because you got different, but you you gave them especially high praise. So I just wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Well, they were they were. I was right in there with them. I was pushing yeah. them hard as I could. Got them on uh, Pop Adult Radio at one point. I think. Yeah, oh, I cool. did. Yeah. yeah. So crossover, because they were technically a country band. Is that right? Absolutely. Or, yeah. Okay. That was they your were... com comfort zone. And if you broke out of that, then uh, you had a chance of getting on pop adult radio. Well, because that brings up another thing. Like I, I often talk, talk to artists and then, you know, they, they get categorized by the record companies, right? You got Canadiana, you've got uh, folk, you got, you know, there's a whole bunch of different categories. Like how did you sort that out, especially from a marketing perspective? I tried to stay away from it. Did you? Yep. yep, music's music. Um, and that may, you may say, well, that's pretty smarmy of you. And that's easy for you to say, but actually that's what it is. So if you're uh, at a uh, 
uh, adult contemporary pop adult radio station and you, you're going, oh, uh, that's Prairie Oyster, they're country, go away. Uh, play the record. It's that simple. And do what your ears tell you at that point. Yeah. You know, because it might be something that would work for your station. I mean, I've gone through that for years with radio who, who actually did listen and, and learned. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, it's the pigeonholes are too convenient. Yeah. That's why I like AAA radio, uh, which is adult album alternative mm-hmm. and it's American format right. made up of a clung- conglomerate of radio stations of those three formats. Um, but if you're, good enough or smart enough to get on that uh, chain, you can probably, and it has proved itself, break from the AAA over to Pop Adult and onward. Um, I've seen it happen. You know, some country artists who became then big on country radio itself with that help, they they were great. They succeeded. They were successful. And they were successful for the country stations that turned them down the first time. Right. Well, so the anomaly to that, you know, is someone like Shania. I mean, they would put out three versions of a song, right? They had the country one with the fiddles and everything. Then they have a rock one and then a dance one. They do a mm-hmm. dance mix or something. So they kind of played into that. And yeah. Said, okay, fine. You know, and that worked well for them. I mean, that's part of the reason why she was one of the biggest selling artists in the 90s, I think. Yeah, that's true. But then, so you talk about the radio. That's the other thing that struck me about reading your books is the, you know, the crazy radio promotions and the on-air personalities and dealing with the program directors. Like you got to go down to the radio station and talk to the program directors and kind of see what they're, they're feeling and kind of persuade them. Okay. This might work for you. How how was that process? It was fine. I got along with um, just about everyone I can think of, but my thing is, if, if that's the medium that you're going through to get your record started, it's a good thing to know the medium. Just don't go in and assume uh, like a lot of people do. Oh, I got a record. They'll play it. No, right. <laughs> they don't have to play records. Yeah. It's, it's um, a relationship driven business uh, yeah. or sorry, it was, I don't know what they do now. However, right. Uh, you got you try your best to get along with people. You know, you should be able to walk through the, a radio station and know most of the people you bump into in the hallway. Right. You know, and it helps to uh, have listened to uh, their station on the way to make your call. You might run into the morning guy and say, hey, you know what you said? You know, and they're going, ah, yeah, oh, he listens to us. That's good. Yeah. Oh, okay. You know, it's building relationships. Right. And then you mentioned Roy Hennessy, who was an icon really around Vancouver. And stuff. Oh, he was. And, uh, and he passed away, I think, just recently, right? Just yeah, a few years, two, yeah. Few years, right? That's, I, Roy and I got along um, very well. Uh, he was very patient because uh, he was uh, at LG when I got uh, into promotion. And uh, I feel sorry for a lot of the stuff he had to listen to me say because <laughs> I was feeling my way through it. Yeah. And um, he was very patient. He was, he was a bit of a, a supporter, uh, never had a, a bad word to say about him. Um, mm. It was just the easy guy to get along with. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, the reason I remember that name is because there was a show on BCTV in the seventies called talent breakthrough. Oh, and yeah. Roy, Roy was the uh, host of that show. 
and I was a teenager and I was on that show. I went and auditioned and they, they liked my songs and I played an original song and a cover song and Roy interviewed me. I just, I was a kid. I was probably 14 years old. Wow. And he was very kind and very, very gracious. But you know what? The funny thing about that is I went back years later and said, uh, you know, I was on this show, I think it was 1973 or four, and I'd like to get a copy of it. And they said, oh, we erased all those tapes. Yeah. They actually didn't keep them. They either walked over them with another show or got rid of them. And I said, yeah. you've got to be kidding. This is part of Canadian history. He said, no, we didn't keep them. Yeah, you're right. Um, that's, that happened. I don't know what right. the thinking was there. Well, I certainly hope it wasn't economic. Well, I guess. I mean, it could have been partially with the film, the expense of film back then, I guess. But, uh, you know, it just, just seemed very odd to me that they wouldn't keep something that was a, a you know, a TV show that was important, would have been important at some point in the future, yeah. you would think. But yeah, go Mulligan ahead. was big on uh, Let's Go, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And there, but there's still clips of those. That's the thing. The CBC shows and stuff. You you can go on YouTube and find uh, clips of uh, Let's Go and all. Like I had Howie Vickers on and that. And they, oh yeah, they're all on there. All those videos are on there, or a lot of them are. Maybe Terry so, made him keep it. Yeah, well, <laughs> you would think it would be an archive thing. I mean, you know, I would. Yes. Yeah. So uh, tell me about the Juno Awards. How many of those did you attend, and what's what's the deal with that? What's your take on <sighs> um, those? How many? Oh my God! Uh, Seventy. Well, every every year since uh, uh, 1970, I would imagine. Wow! Right, even so before it was the Junos. Right? That is. Yeah. Well, wasn't it the Maple Awards right before it became the Junos or something? Yes, it, it was. That was the RPM. Okay. Maple Awards. And then they grew. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it was kind of perfunctory, I guess, of you to be there as a record guy and. Uh, looking after your people and seeing what's out there. Yeah. And meeting people and uh, just learning how the business worked. Hmm. What was your thoughts on it? Was it a big schmooze fest? Was it important? Was it? Uh... Oh, it became important when I got uh, better at what I was doing and smarter at what I was doing. Uh, didn't just write it off as, uh, oh yeah, that's the, the Maple Awards. Who cares? Well, yeah. you better carry. That's your country. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I thought it was uh, good because you always learn stuff. Yeah, I just wondered what. Uh, I mean, it's it's a commitment. You have to travel to where it is. You got to do the schmooze. There's a lot of pressing of the flesh, right? And meeting people and. Yeah, yeah. Uh, th so. Those kind of trips were exhausting, though. Well, yeah. You know, because you were from uh, uh, BC, so uh, Toronto was up three hours ahead of you, and they when you went to Toronto for these functions. Um, they would fill the time with, you know, meetings and sessions and, uh, yeah. at night, uh, you'd go see, uh, uh, heavy metal bands played in condemned buildings, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and, and Way every, too loud. Every, meal, every meal was chicken. <laughs> there there you go. Go. Oh my God. They're on the top of the endangered species list. That's funny. Yeah. Did you ever but, think about moving to Toronto? Not even in a weak moment. No. Nope. They wanted me to go to Toronto uh, and handle the national promotion. But Toronto's thinking and my thinking are two di very different things. And I was more comfortable here. And I didn't really need uh, the position. So I right. said, why would you get rid of your best person in that market? Uh, nah, not going to do it. I'm going to uh, stay here and do my job. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, it's a different world. I, I was born in Guelph, so I lived around there when I was younger. So yeah, I'm from back there. But and what about moving to the states? You ever think about that? No, no. I did uh, have 
a lot to do with the states in that RCA LA, uh, same time zone. And uh, just after I got to RCA in 77, uh, you had to go down there once a month and just check things out. Yeah, okay. And uh, you would get to see the people that create the hits and stuff like that. Um, I mean, it's all good, but um, it was something that uh, was a field leveling experience because you could see how they thought and how we think. Uh, We don't all do things the same way. Um, There's one RCA guy, unfortunately, somehow got caught up in a payola thing and went to jail. I knew the guy and I thought, what fresh hell is this? Because usually that kind of thing, uh, that's why they had independent promotion people. Which was one step removed from payola, right? Oh, yeah. Quite quite an arm's length. Yeah. So the the label wouldn't have that to deal with um, directly. But, uh, you know, that never happened in Canada that I can understand because it wasn't worth it. Yeah. Well, the CanCon helped, I guess, to a certain extent, promoting Canadian acts. If they were Yeah, it did, but there was a big misunderstanding in the States about that. You would go and say, well, tragically, hip here, it's got all this number, all these stations. And they'd say, yeah, but you have to play that. Okay. No, we don't. Radio doesn't have to play any particular record. They're They're selling advertising. They're not selling records. Yeah. That's just part of their, their landscape. But, you know, that attitude probably sunk a few ships. Okay, I see. Yeah, I never thought of that. So you're saying that that we, even though we had CanCon requirements, we still picked the best music. Yeah. And the stuff that we thought would sell the best. Mm-hmm. So, so it was a leg up, but it wasn't a handout in the sense of giving crappy music airplay that they wouldn't otherwise get. Is that, yeah. what you, is that fair? Well, I'd say yes. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, so you, you liked it on the West Coast and you stayed here. So now your second book, uh, Monkey See, Monkey 2, is a bit of a different format. The first one you did alphabetically, which is kind of cool. And the second one is you, you were obviously taking notes for a lot of years and you put the dates on them. I think it's 20, 2015 to 2018 or something. You're writing these little sort of vignettes or these little anecdotal stories about things that you remembered. And yeah. then that's what became the book. Well, one one book, yeah, there are two different writing styles. One one's a lot of uh, finger fingernail or snapshot uh, comments, and right. the other one is uh, me getting long in the tooth and uh, carrying it on and fleshing out the story, giving it more balance and more meaning. Yeah. Okay. No, it's it's good. Yeah. And so you said that you wrote the the second one first and the first one second. Is that right? Um, the first no, the first one was I wrote first. I put the second one out first. Oh, I see. Okay. The first first one was written, but it wasn't put out yet. Okay. But I took a page out of Monty Python's book and put out number two. <laughs> uh, pardon me. Let me rephrase that. Yeah. The second book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't need any critics out there. Um, that way, because it was funny. Because people yeah. say, oh, I got number two. Where, where's the first book? Right hey. here. Ka-ching. See, I was confused by that. There you go. So thanks for straightening that out. That yeah, because Money Python would do all, all kinds of uh, uh, different stuff, and I had the pleasure to have worked with them. There you go. So you do the sequel first, and then yep. you do the original. Yeah, okay, perfect. Well, the one thing that I, that I noticed right away in there is you're quite a gifted sketch artist, I mean, which is something I admire because I have zero, I mean, minus negative talent in that respect. Well, thank you. 
Um, as long as I can remember, I've always been drawing something. Uh, in fact, I was just going through one of my art books this morning and, and said, oh, yeah, okay, well, that developed to that. Um, it's kind of like writing a song or writing a story. Um, yeah. you, you just get better if you stay with it. But one thing I learned, whether it's writing a song or a story or almost anything, is don't force yourself. Don't hmm. do that because it's liable to uh, come out uh, flatter than uh, a pancake hmm. the, be, because the, the creative drive isn't there. You didn't right. let it just come out on its own. It's in there. It needs to come out. But if, if you force it, it's, it's going to be one-dimensional. Yeah, interesting because you know when people talk about that with music, well, that you just the music just flows from you. But then, then I see people doing sketches, and I'm thinking, okay, you got a pen and you got a piece of paper, and mm-hmm. then this stuff just magically starts to appear, and it just it mesmerizes me. I'm just amazed. Yeah, this vision that you have in your head can come out on paper. Yeah, I, I think I got my whatever talent that is from my mother hmm. because it was her who left me in a cardboard box marked free kittens 50 cents <laughs> on my grandparents uh, step doorstep when I was two and I never oh. saw her again oh wow so I had to uh, that was part of making me what I am because yeah. I had to contend with that and grow with that so yeah. I think that's her making up for lost time <laughs> so how old were you when you knew that that had happened well uh, about five. Oh really? So you yeah, knew early. but everything was a secret in our family. So right. uh, it took me uh, fifty-five years to reconnect to my estranged family. Wow! And some of them turned out to be musicians, um, uh, players, etc. Yeah. But there was—I was missing a, another brother, and sixty-five years later, I got him. Okay. Well, nice, and that worked out well for you. Are you happy yeah, about I've, that? We we all get along well. Good. We all. Uh, understand that what happened was just a big awful mess yeah and uh we we're adults so we just get along we're fine i guess and i guess after reflecting back it is what it is and you ain't going to change it so you probably you know philosophically just go hey it is what it is yeah you got to get off over the part well oh poor me i got left right because grow up that's the way it is be something the other interesting thing about you is you're sort of a natural comedian. You know, you always got a good joke or you, you're quite jovial about things. I guess that would have helped you in your business, but it seems like a natural sort of bent. I guess I developed it over the years, realizing that people paid attention when you made them laugh. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I just think, I guess I just kept going and developing that. And uh, thank you very much. I appreciate yeah. <laughs> that. Well, that's good. It served you well. And then one of your stories is about the crash test dummies promo where you had a chicken head gear on. Is that right? You went down. Oh the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. You should mention that because as we're still moving into this, our new digs, yeah. I came across my crash test dummies wristwatch oh. and uh, the, the little hand puppet that Lynn made for me, which was the worm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we, we went on that little expedition and, uh, it was something I wouldn't normally do. I did do something like that for odds. Um, but not a lot of that, that just becomes a visual wallpaper after a while. Right. Yeah. Well, I had Brad on the uh, podcast actually talked to him. He lives in New York now. Oh yeah. Still putting out songs and, and writing and stuff. So yeah, they were kind of an odd band. I was thinking of how you promote that. They were, because they're sort of different, which helps you, but then they're kind of odd in a way. 
Yeah. With the baritone voice and stuff. It was. Uh, but they were an enjoyable act for me because it was like from the ground up and you just go. Yeah. Just do the best you can with it because I had a lot of people say no. Hmm. And uh turned out that they had one of the biggest hit singles and best-selling albums um, in the country. Yeah. Don't shrug your shoulders and walk out saying, well, they're never going to play it. Try and think of a way to get their attention focused. Well, and Superman was was a big song, right? I mean, that was, yeah, yeah, that lent itself to a lot of promotion ab- uh, uh, yeah. abilities. So, I was curious if you, if you go into a radio station and do that shtick. I mean, you're, you're impressing the radio people, but it's all audio, so people can't see what you're doing. But I guess you're right. having fun, and that translates onto the radio, and then it gets your song played. Yeah, like uh, with with the crash test dummies, I went and bought um, styrofoam. Uh, cups of uh dew worms yeah. and uh put the cd in the middle of them and took it to the radio station and gave it to him i said well here's the new single this is where i said dig around it's in there <laughs> oh that's perfect that's great i, I did so, another one once i can't remember what it was oh yeah it was uh oh yeah romeo's daughter uh her their song was uh crying in the back seat. So I did the same thing with the, the dummies, except I uh, put a uh, styrofoam tub of uh, chopped onions oh. <laughs> in with the single when they opened it. There were oh. tears everywhere. They're trying to grab a chair and throw it through a window to get fresh air. That's funny. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So were they happy about that or were they mad at you? Well, no, mm-hmm. they, it, it was too fun. Too much yeah. fun. Yeah. There you go. That's funny. So another thing you do in your, in your book, in your second book, is that you do um, a, a fairly extended chapter on the remembrances of people that you, friends and colleagues that, that you worked with that are gone now. And you, you speak quite glowingly of some of them. Yeah. Stuff. So, I mean, you know, every year we get older, I often say every year we get older, uh, there's a longer list of people that we used to know that used to be around that were colleagues or friends or whatever. And yep. that list is quite long when you get to to your age or even my age. Yep. Um, so mention that. You know, who were the people that you really uh, admired that passed on? Well, a lot of them were um, my workmates. Yep. Um, and I, I wanted to say something because there was a, a vacuum of reaction from a lot of people, other people in the company where, well, he's gone next. But I didn't want right. to say that because I knew some people had uh, problems and they had great successes overcoming things uh, just by using their creative ability. And I just wanted to, to say their names and uh, because I did respect them. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, I appreciate uh, that. Nothing yeah. wrong with that. No, I appreciate that. I mean, in the context of, of really a, a funny book and, and a book where you're making lots of jokes and talking about your experiences and stuff, you did put that in there and it seemed like it was an important thing to do. And I did appreciate it because you're right. You know, these people, they come and go. And especially in the context of business, it's like next, you know, he's not around. He can't do his job. Who's next? Yeah. And well, on, on the other hand, like uh, there's a bit in there about Russell Marr, who was the owner of Heart and Soul Records. I may have reiterated this before, so stop me if I'm repeating myself. Oh, go ahead. But that's his store was how we used to go get our music. We had the radio and that was fine, but we also liked a lot of soul and R&B, um, which radio didn't play a lot of. Uh, Vancouver was more than most provinces, but we'd go down to Russell's store 
and would say, ah, what's new? They he put on a record after one after another. Oh, give me that, you know, and that's oh wow. Yeah. Russell's in-store radio show is how we bought records. Oh, very cool. And then the other thing that struck me, like like your book is just riddled with all the, basically the biggest names in music. And you mentioned a bunch of them and, and you mentioned Roger Whitaker, which is funny because that was my parents' sort of music and he was mm-hmm. the great whistler. We our, our, our keyboard player in our band, Andy, he whistles all the time. So we oh, yeah, Roger Whitaker of the band. <laughs> Cause, yeah. Cause he, well, Roger was a lot of fun. He was a, an older style entertainer, yeah. Uh, but you know, he was fun to work with, and I enjoyed his humor. Yeah, and I, I mean, he used to call me up sometimes just to say hi. And he'd, oh yeah, I'm just at the airport changing planes, and I I just had uh, pins put here and there, and I said. Holy smokes, Roger, you, yeah. you must sound like a version of tubular bells when you go through security. And he was thought that was pretty funny, and yeah. we just got along very nicely. But he comes across as a more sort of normal guy. He wasn't an egomaniac or any no. one of those, those guys, right? Just a, a regular guy that happened to sing and play guitar and whistle. Yeah, ear piercing. <laughs> yes, there you go. Yeah, very good at it, though. And then you mentioned Sammy Davis about the show that you had you had set up. So the other thing that struck me about that is that you you had a lot riding on some of these things sometimes, and then things would go sideways on you. Like yeah, like, ticket sales weren't what they <laughs> envisioned it to be. Uh, even though he had the hit at the time, uh, the Candyman, and I think I called that chapter the Candyman Can't. Yeah. <laughs> I know, which and, is uh, weird because he was a huge U.S. star. I mean, you'd think that was a no-brainer, right? Yeah. You know what? It could have been the wrong timing, though. What I've found through the years is some acts don't sell when you think they should to advance their show because you're using the same format of advertised ad mat that you do for everything you do. So there's no distinct difference. Ergo, my effort for the Eurythmics of putting their album upside down. Right. You know, to get people's attention. But it's just some acts just beg to be handled differently. Like when the Pythons came out, everybody in Canada knew them, but the ticket sales were like morbid. So it it took a a major uh, kick in the pants of my uh, uh, cage on the flatbed and uh, all that stuff to – get people's attention. You know, mm. it's the same yeah. attention that could have been had before, but it wasn't being approached properly. Well, the interesting thing about that though, is that, that you, as a record company, you didn't have the full, like you didn't have a piece of their live shows. I mean, it would help boost your sales, but the uh-huh. promoter was the one that would be taking it on the chin for that if, if there wasn't enough people, right? Yeah. But you know, if, if every, if everybody does well or does better than, you know, it's better than everybody going down on their own because, as you said, if they didn't play, their records would still sell. But if they did play, there was greater opportunity for exposing the product. Right. Yeah, I see. So you had a you had some skin in the game there, right? You wanted yep. those shows to go off well. Yeah. Yeah. And then you mentioned uh, Millie Vanilli. Like, you, you were promoting them, I'm assuming, right? Is what well, that was our job. <laughs> and And so you suspected there was an issue, though, you said. Yeah, we did. Um, and we all know what that issue was now. Yeah. Uh, some, you see, in, in Europe, particularly, uh, image is everything. I don't know if you could apply that to the Beatles or not. There was more like a sound and image. But these guys who came out of a, a development in, in Germany, and uh, 
somebody said, you know, uh, come over here with your hair. Uh, just do this, do that, and uh, pretend you're singing it. And uh, the real band never got anything for it. What they were uh, syncing to was a real band. They weren't called Milli Vanilli. I forget exactly what they were, but yeah. I exposed it there. Um, and it was just a big scam. Okay. But then their argument in the end was, well, you, you like the song, so what? Who cares? Yeah. Right? I mean, um, you sold, I you sold records. <laughs> I mean, well, we care. We do because they were misrepresenting themselves. Right? Yeah. But the people liked the record and the record sold, so no harm, no foul. Yeah. I would have, I would have preferred uh, the original band who performed right. it got the credit for it because all Millie Vanilli were doing, or Silly Manilli, yeah. was. Um, aping uh well they weren't even aping anything they were uh pretending they were singing somebody else's song and right. all they had to sell was their hair yeah I, I remember it was a big issue at the time but i mean geez louise go ahead 30 years now you know half the acts out there you they got tons of recorded stuff when you go going to see a live act a lot of times now a lot of it isn't live yeah. So I think we've kind of, you know, that might've been the we exposed something that, that had sort of proliferated now into mm -hmm. people accepting it. Right. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, so the other thing that you bring up in your book is the Beatles and stones debate, which is mm -hmm. kind of interesting. There was a TV, there was a radio show one time and, uh, and the guy asked, you know, the question was who's better, the Beatles or the stones. And I called in and I talked to him and I said to them that, you know, that's the, a false comparison because the Beatles, the metal, the melodies that they wrote and the, the sophistication they had with their music will probably never be matched. And it's really not comparable to other bands, even the Stones. And mm -hmm. so they, he said, OK, fine. And then and then about um, four callers later, Terry David Mulligan called in and he said almost exactly the same thing. Good. He said there's no comparison. Yeah. So it depends if you're saying uh, musically. Are who is better, or uh, uh, performance-wise, who is better? Because the Stones were quite a lot better as live on stage. Um, the Beatles basically stood there and looked cute, and, and but delivered a good show. The the performance, to me, went to the Stones. Yeah, fair enough. And the longevity, you, which you point out in the book. Yeah. Right? You say, look, I mean, nobody. I mean, who are you going to compare them to as far as the longevity? I yeah, and didn't the Stones' uh, first record wasn't that uh, a Beatle, uh, Rolling St uh, Beatles song? Yeah, yeah, that's right. They, you mentioned that. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, you did mention that too. But I thought it was kind of. A, I, I do think it's a false comparison, but I guess it comes up because they're both English bands that came merged around the same time and and had some level of success. Both of them large success. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. And then in the book, you do a whole chapter about Les Vote. I was going to ask you if you know Les Vote, and of course, that was a stupid question. I know that you would, and I've known Les for many years myself and Marty Kramer, of course, and and uh, Les had the Prowlers, and I had him on the show. He's been on the podcast, and and so your experience with Les uh, Vote has been a positive one, I think, is what you say in the book. Always. Yeah. I first met Les on the, uh, it was a music hall down the corner from the John Oliver High School and every uh, Friday I think it was they had uh, a band and I think it cost like a quarter to go in hmm. and Les was at uh, the bottom of the stairs taking the money and smiling and being nice and the band yeah. was probably the Seafun Classics or, or whatever yeah. 
which was smart on his part because it's going to get promoted by that venue or yeah. that medium. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. The radio station would, would give you some pump for yeah. free, I guess. Right. And then, uh, years later I, uh, was doing, uh, I was helping the, the, uh, army, Navy and air force, uh, service club in Steveston. They asked me to come and give them a hand, uh, cause they'd lost their, uh, booker hmm. and uh i didn't really want to get involved too much but i booked bands and uh spoke to Les quite a lot because he had a lot of special acts out there and we we became uh pretty good friends and uh I, in fact I, I have to go out and see him pretty soon now um i've got a copy of the book for him nice and uh oh yeah he's a great guy uh hmm. i i can't think of uh uh anything that I, I could say otherwise about yeah. him. Well, the interesting thing with Les, he had the hit song with the Prowlers and then he didn't like being on stage and he had a real bent for uh, booking bands and doing the business part of it and stuff. And that's yep. how I've known him. He did the legend shows. Of course, he managed Roy Orbison for the last few years of his career. Yep. And then he managed Larry Branson. And I played guitar on tons of his shows, probably a couple hundred of his shows over the oh, years. Oh, wow. Because uh, he would hire our band, March Hare. We'd sort of rent the band out to do shows that Les had, and he would have different impersonators, and we'd go and play for them. And uh, he was also involved in Merritt Mountain Music Festival. We were the house band there for probably eight or nine years. Oh, wow. And so I dealt with Les all the time through that. We'd meet at his office in New West. And uh, yeah, I always got along with him, and I consider him a friend. Yeah, he's a good man. So, yeah, good. And good he's, piece uh, of Vancouver history. Absolutely. And I think he's 83 or four now. So, but he's still working as far as I know. So well, I better uh, hurry up and see him. Well, there you go. And when you see him, <laughs> say, say hi to him for me because I uh, will for yeah, sure. I always appreciate it less. Um, so I, I, there's lots to talk about here, but I'm going to do a little uh, rapid fire if that's okay. Just so in the interest of time here, um, you mentioned Fred Latrimo, who would, in, for anyone from Vancouver, he was an icon in Vancouver and well-loved, yeah, well-respected. His birthday was October 22nd and mine is the 20th. And oh. uh, we used to go back and forth over that. Yeah. Uh, but he was just a very easy person to get along with. Never had an issue. Never. Mm-hmm. He was a great guy. Yeah. And especially back then, you kind of mentioned how, how important the DJs were, like that, mm-hmm. that, that they're an important part of what you were trying to do. And the radio was, of course, the center of the universe for much of people's music on the beach, mm-hmm. in the car, wherever. Yeah. Um, so you do bring that out, which I appreciated because one of the things that I get from your writing is that you, you see the whole big picture. Like you've got that sort of bird's eye view, looking down on all the pieces and trying to put them all together. And the DJs are an important part of that whole sort of matrix that you're in. Absolutely. In. Yeah. So good. Well, I was I, glad that you mentioned Fred. So. I tried to get along uh, with a lot of people. There's one guy, I won't mention his name in case of trouble. But he was a weather person on uh, one of the TV uh, news shows. So I called him up and I said, listen, uh, when you're saying, okay, the weather this weekend is whatever, uh, can you just say, uh, why don't you go out and see this band at, uh, at a concert in Stanley Park? And he did. Oh, wow. Nice. And uh, I didn't want to push that too, yeah. too many times, but I thought that's pretty good. Yeah, sure. Nothing wrong with that. And then you give a, a tip of the hat to the black artists like Johnny Jenkins and Otis Redding and Sam Cooke and stuff, which I thought was also a great thing. Because in the music business, I mean, I guess they had their issues in the southern states with the black-white stuff. But in Canada, we had very little of that that I ever experienced. Yeah. And we loved all those guys and loved their music. And it was just all positive from my perspective. Well, I, I actually wrote a song called Too Little, Too Late. 
that's not the puff piece song. This was about the black entertainers, uh, most of which you just mentioned. Yeah. And each one of them got a little uh, verse chorus. Nice. And, and I, I really uh, en- enjoyed writing it because I knew what these guys, or sorry, I couldn't know. I imagine what these guys had to go through culturally. Yeah. And uh, two of my own brothers are that. They're brothers. Hmm. And uh, our family are like the UN. Yeah. Um, but I always tried to be fair. I don't remember one guy that, uh, that I had a huge issue with, although uh, P. Diddy wasn't one of my favorites. That's for right. sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you mentioned that in your first book, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, well, but again, you're dealing with ego there, and and a, a sort of an inflated sense of self. I think is what yeah. you're pointing out. So, were you ever starstruck at any point? Like you've met lots and lots of people. Did you ever feel like you were in the presence of greatness? Like who who really sort of set you on your toes? Uh, well, Dolly Parton. Yeah. From the first time I met her, it was like, oh my God, she was like. So real, so genuine. Yeah, I was a fan without hearing her sing. Smart, talented, self-confident, yeah. normal kind of person, right? Genuine, a real person, and uh, I, I look forward to working with her every single time. Sometimes I, I, Kenny would be in the on the same show. Yeah, Kenny Rogers. Um, no, she's one of my all-time favorites. Well, the thing about Dolly, like you know some people complain about artists who make it, there's a lot of artists who made it big, who aren't really that talented or, or they have a lot of sort of fluff and more sizzle than steak, let's say. And someone like Dolly, I mean, you know, like when she tells a story about nine to five, they asked her to be on the movie and she said, well, I'm not really an actress, but I'll do it as long as I can write the theme song for the movie. So they said, okay, you you know, I mean, like what, what a talented, smart, you know, person who just made a life for herself and is really impressive. So I, I give you kudos for that one for sure. Well, She's unique. Um, I go just for fun. I go through these radio station surveys and uh, rate these t- rate these songs. Yeah, and a lot of that is country radio. But I'll go through it, and my biggest disappointment is the the female songs are almost sound cookie cutter. The voices almost sound the same. Um, the, the production on the record sounds the same. And I'm not down on female artists. My comment about that is who put them in that context? And why did she, that person allow them to do that? Uh, well, you know, the, you want to get a record. The, you just listen to what this guy says and do what he says. And, and yeah, your record might get on the radio, but it's not probably going to be there for long. Yeah. And they don't get the opportunity to be like Dolly or Emmy Lou or so many other people I could mention, which are like intelligent, hmm. and real, and honest uh, writers, performers. Yeah. Well, you make a good point because, as you well know, there's a whole industry in Nashville that you've got your Nashville writers, you've got the producers, you've got, and they want to get stuff that sounds like stuff that's already out so you can Uh sort of be at that level. But then your point is, is is a good one that you end up sounding very cookie cutter. Yeah. You know, it's good and the production's good and it's, it's good, but it's very similar to, you know, the other 10 Mm -hmm. that are good. So, yeah. So you, uh, did you ever meet Elton John? Yes, I met Elton John. Yeah, How I was met that? Reg. Um, yeah. 
he was on MCA at that time. The okay. reason I met him was we had the soundtrack to the movie Friends, hmm. and he had a number of tunes on him. One of them was a big hit at that particular time. Yeah. And uh, he was uh, in town to play the uh, Coliseum, and uh, this little guy came in all flash and glam and all that stuff. Yeah. And uh, he went around, oh, very nice. Nice to meet you. And uh, I thought, is this the guy that's going to blow the lid off the Coliseum tonight? Hmm. Yes, it was, because he's yeah. a different guy when he gets on stage. Huh. I mean, he was very pleasant and everything. I, I got nothing bad to say about him. Yeah. He's written, so Skyline Pigeon, to me, is one of the best songs ever written. Yeah, well, he's fantastic. I mean, that was a B-side. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> Well, he's just one of those natural talents that uh, is just a one in a million guy, right? Yeah. Well, so. I'm naturally nosy, so that's how I found out what it was a B side. <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> so you never mm -hmm. met Elvis yourself, but no, uh, he died the day RCA hired me. There you go. That was a very same. Yeah, that was August sixteenth, nineteen seventy seven. Correct. Yeah, and I thought, wow, we're off to a good start here. Gee, yeah. <laughs> And yeah, and I mean, obviously his impact has just never waned. I mean, we talk about the Elvis Festival. We play up at the Peach City Beach Cruise pretty much every year, and it's the same weekend as the Elvis Festival. So you get all the Elvis oh, yeah. guys walking around. So you were um, somewhat flattering and unflattering at the same time talking about the Elvis Festival. Just the um, guys yeah, mimicking. Yeah, uh, I, I, I realized that tribute acts are part of the business. It's entertainment. Yeah. Um, to me, some of those things go way over the top. Yeah. And there was this, this long line of entertainers who were going to do their best version of what they thought Elvis would have done. Yeah. Um, but to me, keep in mind, I'm jaded. I just thought, well, it's a lot, yeah, a little too much. Maybe get a, a few of the good ones up there. But I, I couldn't write it without having some humor in it. Yeah. So. <laughs> I put that because a lot of stuff I write has that. Yeah. No, I, and you make a fair point. I mean, some of them are caricatures of mm -hmm. what Elvis would have been. And it's kind of like, do I really need to, to see this? Maybe, but uh, maybe not. <laughs> well, I went to an Elvis convention in Vegas and it was creepy. Every time you turned around, uh, there was the cadaver standing behind you. There's <laughs> Elvis as ever. Elva. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I, I, I met, uh, the guy who called himself Colonel Parker, right. uh, he was there uh, signing things and figuring out percentages. I went up and said, hi, I'm, you know, I'm sure he wasn't listening. And he was sitting uh, next, uh, beside his next victim, Ricky, uh, Ricky Nelson. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I thought you poor bugger. Well, it's, it, there was a rumor, I don't know if it's true or not, but he used to, uh, he wanted to sell eight by tens and stuff. So he made up some stickers that said, I hate Elvis. And he went out and sold them too. Cause he, he figured he was missing out on part of the market. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that made me laugh when I read that. Did you meet David Bowie? Uh, no, I didn't meet David. Although I, I probably, I, I could have, I suppose I had Blondie on their first album and their first tour, and they were playing the Exhibition Gardens out here. Hmm. And uh, the uh, the headliner, can't remember the band's name, but it was uh, the Sales Brothers Band. David Bowie was their, their keyboardist. Okay. Oh, interesting. Huh. Yeah. What, what year would that have been? Oh, yeah. that had to be around uh, in the late 70s. Yeah, okay. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because you did mention him and then of course Blondie was coming up and then she became a big star in her own right and rightfully mm-hmm. so. I think I'm a big Blondie fan. I think she yep. has some great songs. And then you talk about, you have a chapter on hanging out with Charlie Pride when he came up and stuff. You guys, it sounded like you were buddies. We worked together a lot. Um, he was a fun guy. Um, I wrote a story of mine called Country 42 um, because number 42 was the number of the first black uh, baseball player to get into the big leagues. Hmm. I thought there was a, a, a valid comparison between what he did and what Charlie did. For being a country music uh, a black, star, black country music country player. music artist, because they, they didn't put any pictures out of Charlie at that time, because uh, RCA didn't want uh, country radio to know he was uh, a Negro, okay. or they just would have dropped them interesting yeah that's that's weird see again in canada like that that wasn't part of our reality as far as i knew maybe in the states it was but that's oh yeah for sure in the states especially the further south you go yeah the further south it goes (laughs) yeah yeah too bad that's that's, sorry to hear that but you know at least there was some victory there um in the end right he became he proved himself yeah good and then the other curious thing is that you bring out the contrasts, like you talk about Little Richard and Elvis and then Pat Boone and how squeaky clean Pat Boone was. Then he put out some, some Christian albums and he put out a metal album and you, you're just like, follow the bouncing ball here. And, <laughs> and But the interesting part of it was the contrasts you're saying, because Rich, Little Richard was kind of the bad boy and Elvis yeah. was kind of in the middle. He had the hip wiggle, but he was a pretty, you know, good old boy from, from uh, the Southern States. And then Pat Boone was the squeaky clean guy. Yeah, well, uh, uh, American radio would have gone for Pat right away. Right. A lot of people don't get that Elvis was a white guy being a black guy. Yeah, there you go. Because a lot of his uh, early music um, was from his exposure to black performers in their clubs. Hmm. uh, And he would go there. And if he couldn't get in, he'd hang around outside and listen to him. And he, he not only picked up the nuances and things like that, uh, the dance moves, etc. cetera. Uh, and when he did them, the people weren't getting the whole point. <laughs> mm, yeah. But um, then you talk about the, the, the contrast. And I guess from a marketing perspective, now, Little Richard, he, he punched through all that. He fought through that. Same with James Brown. I read James Brown, Brown's yeah. book, too. And he you know, despite his own personal foibles of which there were many, um, he fought through it as well and became uh, mainstream guys, which was a good thing because that's, that's a good example of music being a vehicle whereby you can sort of make some cultural change too. Yeah. And that's good. That's a good thing. It's a great Congrats thing. Congrats to, uh, to him and, uh, and to uh, little Richard. I mean, that takes a lot to get up and get going. Yeah. But then you bring in Chuck Berry, who was uh, <laughs> in and out of jail and, and <laughs> created his own problems. So did you well, work with Chuck Berry? Did you do shows? I've never with- worked with Chuck. Okay. I, I have a, a video of him performing at a car lot in Ladner. Oh, <laughs> jeez. No, I never worked with, with uh, Chuck Berry. I respect what he had to go through, mm-hmm. uh, but he could be his own worst enemy, too. Well, no doubt. Um and, and being a black performer, um, the establishment weren't fond of him, um, as may be attested to the time he got arrested and charged with transporting a white female across the border, hmm. which, you know, 
I, I, I can't say fair enough because the white female was an attack, uh, was an Apache. Oh, oh, that's yeah. You mentioned that in there as, as well as, um, yeah. And she, for the purposes yeah. of prostitution. I yeah, think so what were you really that. after there? Throwing <laughs> another black guy in jail? Well, maybe, I guess he, 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 I mean, he got busted for drugs and gun crime. I think him and James Brown, James Brown was just disaster too. So these guys were living that disastrous lifestyle, I think too. Yeah. Be careful. Yeah. yeah. And then, well, you mentioned in there about the scam, like, like, so Chuck Berry always had to be paid in cash before he went on. Mm-hmm. And then that's the, it was him that, that would up the rate before he went on. And was that the story? Yeah. That, yeah. So he'd say, uh, that, one of the stories was in there came from Craig McDowell. Right. Famous, uh, uh, well-known. Chuck believe I credit him for. Yes, you did. But it was yeah. a great one because <laughs> Chuck didn't get any extra money that night. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a, that's a classic, eh? Like he sell out the place and then he's got to be paid before he goes on and the place is full and he goes, I need an extra thousand or $2,000, which of course is the promoter's profit or, or yeah. then, and then some maybe. And then uh, I just want to ask you a little bit about the record companies. And uh, it's funny because you mentioned Morris Levy in the, the gangster record. That was exec- roulette, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I believe so, but because um, I read Tommy James' book, right? Yeah. And Tommy James was signed to that. He was he was one of the guys from that. That was Morris Levy was the guy that he was signed to. But he said he in that book, and he he's a white guy. You mentioned about the black guys who like Sam and Dave didn't get paid, but Tommy James said he never got paid either. He said that <sighs> that Morris Levy was a gangster, and he yep. would he would basically just treat him nice and and let him make his money on his road on the road and stuff but just wouldn't pay his royalties and, and they were too afraid to ask him yeah <laughs> so, nice eh yeah and so they and, and he said that um that morris levy like if he wanted to sign an artist he would phone the other record companies and tell them not to sign that artist there was chess checker records too that had some issues Paul Anka in his book, he said when they were recording in the sixties, like the mob guys would come right into the studio and it was the, the word was write a word, get a third. So they'd be writing the song and, and, and a gangster guy would, would write a word. They'd get a third credit on that song and they'd get points in perpetuity off of that song. And he said, it, yep. we just had to deal with it. There's nothing we could do. That sounds like so, the Elvis thing. Well, yeah. It's uh, so my point was though, about the whole record business, cause you often hear the musicians complain about it, but then, you know, you've got rival record companies and it's not all rosy on the other side. And you mentioned Penta records and of course, network records was out of Vancouver and mm-hmm. you know, the other side of how tough a business it is and, and you know, how that side of it. So from your perspective, from the record company side, um, what were the challenges and, and so many record companies came and went. The challenges were the cash flow, for one thing, and uh, where you got your money from to get started. Um, Trying to put out a product in a timely and honest manner uh, through the proper channels, you know, like uh, uh, record stores, etc. Getting your acts uh, seen on uh, television or Mm -hmm. in movies. Um, It was all like the legitimate stuff outlay is right there in front of you, but there was always people around that could uh, muddy the water and uh, take advantage. And of course, that usually has effects in the long run. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason that, that came up is because like with Penta Records, for example, that was a big splash. I mean, Bruce Allen was involved and there was some money behind that. Yeah. John Ford, mm-hmm. my, my buddy who got me hired at RCA too. Yeah. So that, that was going to be a real success. They signed, I think, Paul Lane. There was a couple other people on that label. And then it, it fizzled. Yeah. And I'm not sure why. 
Yeah, I I don't know why either, um, because there was large expectations, that's for sure. One thing may have been, and this is just me guessing, Bruce was very successful and being very successful was really busy and he's a real hands-on person. So he might have been spread a little thin uh, with his attention, but I mean, he, he did have four other people that were capable, like John Ford was the head of RCA at once. Right. Okay. Um, to carry the weight. Yeah. But uh, I, I can only guess. Yeah. Okay. I just, yeah, the reason I brought that up is just because it, there's two sides, right? I mean, the record companies are trying to get, you know, keep their cash flow. They're trying to get their sales. They're trying to pay their expenses and trying to make a profit off of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of them tanked or, or yeah. got absorbed by bigger companies. Mm-hmm. So, well, cool. So looking back on uh, on your career and all the things you went through, do you, are you amazed at how fast it went? I mean, the timelines can be fairly short. And then, of course, when you're in it, like I talked to Erica M. from from Much Music and stuff, and I asked her that. And she said, you know, when you're in it, you, it's just day after day. You don't even think about it till you stop yeah. and look back. Was that your experience? Yep, pretty much. It was a great, great experience. And all, all things weren't... Uh, uh, happy incidents, but they serve to flavor the, uh, the taste of the pie, you know? Um, yeah, I, I thought it was a fantastic career. And, and although I'm of a great advanced age, thanks to the music, I never grew up. There you go. <laughs> to be a kid for your whole life. You Is bet. Anything you would change if you could go back? Uh, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I mean, I had a band, but I'm glad I, I, we weren't successful because I know what I'm like. <laughs> well, you said you play drums and a bit of guitar and you sing a bit. And of course, you, you sent me a song that you uh, that you were working on writing and stuff. So you've, oh, yeah. you've been involved. You, you tried your hand at the other side there a little bit too? Yeah. Yeah, good. I did. But, you know, it wasn't meant to be, but I, I enjoyed writing and uh, playing. Sure, yeah. It was yeah. great fun. Yeah. And uh, what's your bucket list? What do you got? What do you got coming up? Are you just going to relax in your retirement? Or are you doing? Well, any- I'm thinking about doing uh, Promo Monkey Three. Okay. Uh, hmm. The reason for that is I realize, uh, in spite of my copious notes, that I may have forgotten some people along the way. Yeah. So I'm I'm uh, part of what I'm doing now is going back and seeing if there's anything worth doing that way, or if I'm just going to put it on. Uh, on the internet and people can read it as they like if it's not substantial enough for a book. Right. But if I'm going to do a book deal, it's going to be different. Yeah. Many thanks to Ray Ramsey for once again being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his incredible experiences in the music business. More information, he's uh, active on Facebook, uh, Monkey House, The Written Word, spelled W-E-R-D. And uh, the book is available through Friesen Press or Amazon. Look it up. It's Promo Monkey. Uh, the second book is Monkey See Monkey. Two and the first one is Promo Monkey, My Life as a Bellhop in the Waldorf Hysteria. So we hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. And we also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan here.